Hi, everybody. Welcome to Hey Doc, your podcast on youth mental health and all youth mental health related th topics. This is just, I mean, a podcast, a big name for a conversation. So let's just align expectations over here. Uh, we're going to have just conversations with interesting people and different people about mental health related topics. Uh, I'm Vinny. I'm a physician from Brazil, and it would be a pleasure to be with you all here today uh, just to talk with our different guests and have different conversations. I know a first question that always comes is, Vinny, isn't hey doc with an age? I know, I know, hey is supposed to be written with an age, but you're in Brazil, babe, so that's how we roll. It's without an age. Anyways, we have such a special guest with us today. He's a friend of mine. He's a great person. He's amazing. His name is Victor Hugo. Everybody tends to call him Victor Hugo, but it's not Hugo. It's Hugo. I've heard that. Uh, and let me introduce him. He has this huge bio. As I was prepping the episode, I was like, I'm going to introduce Victor because he's done everything everywhere all at once. So I'm like, okay, so please tighten your seatbelts. I'm about to read his bio. It's a lot, but please stick with me. So Victor is a mental health advocate. He's a leader in the conversation about youth participation, leadership, and innovation. He's the founder of Money, Mentally Aware Nigeria Initiative, one of Africa's largest youth-led and user-led mental health networks. Victor works facilitating the revolution in a way many young Nigerians talk and think about their mental health. Um, he's a skilled team lead. Uh, he has many, he has, uh, dedicate a lot of time into promoting community participatory approaches to research design and dissemination in low and middle income countries. Uh, he has built strong relationships with professionals, policymakers, funders, as well as key organizations, stakeholders in the lived experience, adolescent youth, policy development and community participation programming, advocacy and research. Do you think that the buyer's over? It's not. He's done way more than that. Let's just keep going. Uh, but he, I mean, just long story short, uh, he's currently serving as the MHPSS and Youth Engagement Advisor for the MHPSS Collaborative, hosted by Save the Children Copenhagen, Denmark. Uh, and he's now dedicated to building infrastructures that enable young people to lead and participate authentically to ensure context-relevant approaches to their well-being. So, I mean, he's the, the guy, okay? We're going to have such a great conversation today. Let me just pass the word to Victor so he can say hi to everyone. Welcome, Victor. Thanks a lot, Finney. It's really such a pleasure to be part of this conversation. Um, I think when you reached out to me and, and I saw a, a podcast invitation, I was like, yeah, yes, I can do this one. Um, because I, I, have, I have been part of, part of a couple of podcasts and, and of, of course, um, looking at how much time I have and don't have, because I have a, I have a system on old kid now. You know, it's just like, <laughs> how much, how much can I actually invest in in taking on the extra commitments? But yeah, it was I think based on our relationship and 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 the and the things that we've been part of together, I just thought that this was going to be a good opportunity to have a chat on something that we're both passionate about. Victor, thank you so, so much for, for being here. I, I feel like we have so much we can talk about. So, so much. Guys, when I say so much, it's like so much, 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 much. Uh, but I think we like, can really talk about lived experience and advocacy, the importance of peer support and community support, engagement of people with lived experiences and the local community and advocacy and, and research and how to design interventions and uh, youth mental health specificities for low and middle income country settings. There's so much we can talk about. We're going to be here for days. Just fasten your seatbelt, just enjoy. This is going to be a huge conversation. Uh, anyways, uh, I feel like the first question that I want to ask you is, 
Can you please share the inspiration and kind of like the process behind founding the Money Mentally Aware Nigeria Initiative and how it has impacted the perception of mental health among Nigerian youth? Uh, I'm, 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 I'm a huge fan of this work. So please, the stage is yours. Thanks a lot, Vinny. I think, you know, this question has evolved over time. Um, in the past, it was a very straightforward response. Um, but I feel like the response is when I, whenever I think about and reflect on questions like this, it's always in hindsight. You know, if I knew how much of a, <laughs> of a, of a journey, a stressful journey, a very intensive learning experience that was going to be for me, maybe, maybe I would have, you know, <laughs> maybe I would have, I mean, I've done something else. I could, maybe could have stayed back in, in, in my medical practice. Um, but I think it's been such a very life-defining experience. Um, for me, the reason why this organization became a uh, became a reality was obviously I say it, I think it's thirty percent based on my own lived experience because obviously I think everyone who's inspired by lived experience, you have something that you're passionate about, something you've lived through. It makes a huge difference in in terms of the passion that actually keeps you going, um, which is which is such a huge thing. It's such a huge deal, and one of the biggest advices I give to to mentees um, these days is if if you don't have anything that's going to keep you dedicated to this vision then maybe you should consider joining someone else's vision you know someone who has that that drive um, because otherwise you're going to find that you're you're going to spend a lot of time and, and resources that wouldn't be something that you would appreciate over over a long time um, so yes 30 percent my lived experience i was diagnosed with depression when i was in my 15th med school and I think I was lucky enough, and I always say this is very, I was lucky, I was privileged enough to have um, friends around me who were very knowledgeable about the condition. It made sense. They were all medical students, right? So we just finished our secretary, secretary post rotation. And obviously, it was kind of easy to see, hey, Victor is not the way that he used to be. Because I'm very, like, I'm a, I'm a creature of habit. So if, if I'm not doing things that are based on the habit that you know me for, then you know that something is wrong, right? So they, it was kind of easy for them to see that and be able to rally around and say, hey, let's get him support. Um, so I was not diagnosed in the most typical ways. I was diagnosed over dinner with a with a psychiatry professor of ours. So again, that that really shouts, screams privilege, right? Um, but the thing is, you know, going to growing up and going to a private university, I I sort of grew up in that privilege. So I wasn't really aware of what was happening beyond that. I was not aware. It's like I didn't know. I thought everyone had the same level of of um, community, the same level of support from family and and from professors in university, like I did. But I was wrong. Even in my my own university, I remember seeing different people drop out early enough. Like even in the final year of study, they drop out. I remember having a couple of people who killed themselves, and it it just never clicked that, you know, they could have been going through something and they didn't receive the kind, right kind of support. So again, that's why. I, I say I'm, I was lucky to have the right kind of people around me. Um, my friends went as far as, you know, even having to join and firstly say group therapy sessions that they were part of so they can know exactly how to help me and how to support me and how just to learn more about the condition and what exactly can be done. And I went through medical school and I didn't have to drop out, which is such a huge deal, actually, because I was just two years away from my finals. Um, and then I, 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 I was thinking about practicing obviously um and going into surgery i was i was gonna I was, I was very much going to become a neurosurgeon that was my whole that was my whole drive um but one of the days that i went to see a psychiatrist um 
and he said you you're a doctor right i was like yeah i am at least i just finished he said oh my god you're so lucky how when were you diagnosed i was like oh a year and two years ago you were diagnosed in medical school yes i was and you finished medical school <laughs> yes i was yes i did i was like yeah you you were so amazingly lucky now this didn't make any sense to me at the time because i was going back to him i was going to see new psychiatrists because i needed to change up my meds i needed to have um I felt like I wasn't having new symptomatologies, like I, knew I was having new new symptoms that I, I couldn't really deal with, or at least, you know, understand. Um, so again, I got I got diagnosed with <laughs> with with, uh, with an anxiety disorder, a panic disorder, and a sleep disorder in that visit that he was telling me that was lucky. So obviously I didn't take it right. <laughs> and then I got new medications, more medications. So I, again, there's a you know, cultural thing, like you're not meant to talk back to, to older people. He was quite old. So I, I didn't I didn't want to, you know, talk back to say, wow, how you, what do you mean I'm lucky? What does that even mean? <laughs> but I went back on my way back. I called my friends. I was like, can you imagine this very, you know, insensitive psychiatrist who felt it was okay to tell me I was lucky after giving me a bunch of meds <laughs> and new diagnoses that I was still coming to terms with. Um, and of course, my friends were on my side. But then my, my mom, um, she's she's my confidant. So she she told me, you know, I was like, I understand what you're saying, I understand where you're coming from. But being Nigerian and also knowing the system, again, like I mentioned at the beginning, I didn't know enough about the system. I just knew about my community. That you you just you're part of the very few people who could get that kind of support. Maybe you should do your own research. So I did. Uh, so I spent a month reading on the internet, trying to find you know, existing non-profit organizations or charities or government programs that are focused on promotion and prevention of mental health programs in, in young people. And here's the funny thing I didn't find. Oh, wow. I love how, how, like, how moms are. My mom's exactly the same. I'm like, mom, this person told me that he was, she was like, no, no, no. Let me tell you something. And then comes with like this huge thing. I'm like, Mom, you're not my yeah. therapist. Can you just cut this out? <laughs> <laughs> I exactly. need to come to, with my own conclusions. <laughs> Let me think by myself. Anyways, I don't interrupt you. Go on. And you were researching and then nothing comes up. Yeah, so I, I didn't I didn't find. I mean, I find a couple of pages on Facebook. I mean, Facebook was very popular at the time. But they only had um, posts on World Mental Health Day and World Social Prevention Day. It's like those were the only days where they got active visibly. And I thought if you were creating mental health programs for young people, and then we have social media that young people use a lot, then you should definitely be targeting the place that they spend most of the time in. You know, social media is, is schools, high schools and universities, and I didn't see as much of those programs. And the kind of programs that we were creating at the time was much more about symposiums and seminars. And uh, dude, I was when I was in school, I hated symposiums. Like, what am I doing? I'm spending two hours listening to someone give a lecture that I... <laughs> I know. What am I going to do with that? You know, it's like, it's the same thing <laughs> I taught for most young people. I know. There's no fun days. There's no fun. Yeah. If you're a and teacher it, and you're a professor, nothing against you. It's just that sometimes <laughs> seminars aren't, you know, the things we're interested. If you bring like a PS5, an Xbox, or maybe like some games, maybe that will make it work. But I mean, three hours, three straight hours of just lessons. Anyway, I got you. Nah, that won't do. That won't do. So I thought, how exactly do I counter this you know what kind of organization would i create now i wasn't looking to i wasn't looking to build a new organization i designed a model that i thought could work and i went actually went to a, a symposium by um an association of psychiatrists in nigeria they invited i reached out 
first of all, in the sense that I don't know what your culture looks like. But when I reached out, I didn't get any, I didn't get any response. But then I reached out to a friend of mine um, who was a Nigerian. And he said, oh, hey, I know a professor in, in, in this university who can, who actually is you know, well-known, well-published. Maybe he can, maybe we can, I can make a connection for, for both of you. And he did. And then he said, hey, we have a symposium coming up in this place. Do you want to come down? So I flew down to the state. I went and, and I sat down and, and I did a presentation of the model. And here's the thing. After the presentation, they thought, this is really interesting. Um, I said, I'm not trying to build a whole new organization. I just, I can, I can just, I can fund myself. I can come to your organizations. I can train you on how to use these models and approaches. Because I didn't have the, I didn't think I had the time, you know, to just start my own from scratch. And I didn't, I always looked to invest in already existing programs. Even at the time, I was quite young. And they said, sure, sure, sure. Here's my card, you know, give me a call, send an email. Now, three months after doing that, I sent all the emails, I made all the calls, no one was, was responding. Um, so I thought, okay, one, I think one night after just giving it long thought, I just told my friends, hey, I'm just going to pause medical, you know, clinical practice for a bit and try and do this myself. And I need a couple of people to be part of the, the director's board for formal registration. And my friends, of course, are like, sure, 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 let's do it. Sounds exciting. It sounds like one of those, we did a lot of fun things in school. Like, sounds like one of those fun things. Let's do it. So we came together and we did it. You know, we got it registered. <laughs> they had no idea how much work was coming their way. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah, exactly. So we, I think one of the kudos to them, you know, they were, they were, they were very supportive to me. Um, but I could also understand, you know, working in, working directly, in, you know, in, in hospitals, you, you don't have as much time for yourself, you know. Which means you might not even have time. For, obviously, you don't have time for anything else. So it became like a one-man thing with support from people who could say, "Hey, you know, do you need how much money do we need to raise this time?" We usually raise money internally, um, and then we started with we started with some initial campaigns to reach out to celebrities and influencers to say, "Hey, we want to know. We want to we want you to contribute to the message around mental health. We we are using social media as an approach to create an awareness." And here's the thing is, when we started, we focused solely on awareness in our strategy. We had awareness for three years, and then we go on to something else. Now, it felt it felt right. It felt appropriate for the context that we were dealing with. But when we, six months into raising awareness, we had people reaching out to say, hey, now you have told me what I'm dealing with, but you haven't told me how I'm meant to deal with it. <laughs> and you're like, mom... Please come pick me up. I'm only six. I have no idea what I'm doing here. Yeah, I know. So, well, thankfully, before then, we we had we had a couple of volunteers who we had registered in different um, sort of like you know mental health first aid program, a couple of trainings online, um, the suicide safe um, trainings. We we took some of those ourselves, and we got more people registered. And so when when it when it when it, when we started getting those messages, we had to quickly um transition into the next stage um and then we had a, a phone line now we, we don't have a toll-free line for reaching out for mental health in nigeria it doesn't exist so what we did was we had the resources we had our own, for our own funding which was quite substantial at the time and we basically recharged 
you know, like the call line. And if you call us, you don't have to call. You can just flash or you can just send a text like, I need help. You need, you need to call me. And then we call you back. So we, it was it was toll free, but it was reverse toll free. So it's like a reverse toll free, toll free line, right? And then we did that for a while. And then we were taking, we're taking manually taking track of all the people that called in the gender that you know was calling in and we found that 85 percent of people that reached out to us were men and boys and no we're women and 15 percent were men and boys so we thought how do we counter this so again process of researching and trying to find out what's the right way to go um we we did a whole brainstorming session what are some of the barriers to entry to 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 reaching out for for young boys and men of course very very much like the same thing about stigma and men men not men not crying or not being expressive or being macho and all of that alpha male thing that is very cultural in our in our society and then we we changed the model we sort of added in new concepts where we went text-based instead of call because it makes sense if you're a guy and you're calling and your guys around you and you're calling someone say hey i honestly i'm depressed you know like they laugh at you. They make jokes at you. They might even give you new names and nicknames. You know, that's not something that young boys want to be attached to them. But when it came to text over WhatsApp, you can just send a text and just close it, right? Like no one knows what you're texting. You can lock your phone, have a new password. We didn't have we didn't have face um, face ID then, so no one can actually you know no one can mistakenly just like get you to unlock it or even tamper it. They didn't exist. So we we started seeing a shift. First of all, we had a 200% increase in people reaching out to us, which is huge. And then we had a shift down to from 15% to 35%, and then it stabilized at 45% a year after. So that's sort of like the journey that gave us more or less like the most useful intervention, the most useful innovation that has been the most used. Uh, the, the thing that's really made us popular in the country and in, in the continent is that service, that, that text-based service that we offer people. Um, in terms of the actual mental programs that we did, um, obviously we went the fun way. So we have something called Conversation Cafe, and it's just a conversation that you get to have with other young people. It's meant to be for two hours, but one hour is the conversation about mental health, and you get to sit down at the beach or in a very fancy restaurant and just chat about depression, but not not from you know, not the jagonized ways, like, you know, what are common things that you would feel very, very casual, very laid back. And the, the remaining one hour is just like get to know each other. So obviously young people always like that socializing aspect. You know, it was fun for them to get to make new friends. We had a couple of people who got married off of that a couple of years after, which is something we're very proud of. <laughs> That's so nice. <laughs> you go for mental health support, you end so, up with a partner. That's like a win-win situation. Exactly. Exactly. It's like a community and uh, the volunteer community was huge. They were very supportive. Um, and then, yeah, that's basically the, the trajectory of growth of, of money as an organization. Wow. Do you have, like, just out of curiosity, do we, do we have any, like, numbers on the amount of people that have participated or, like, any estimate? Oh, boy. I mean... They, the conversation cafes, they were, they were happening over 18 states in Nigeria. So Nigeria has 36 states, 18 states. And I think it happens, it was happening every month, I would say. And you will have more than a thousand young people. Wow. That's a lot of people. Different, much more than that. But it's like the minimum was a thousand across the different states at the same time. Um, managed by volunteers, you know, from like, you know, we, we give them, we give them manuals and guidelines, like, you know, this is what the, 
the guide should look like this is what the facilitator should say this is when you get them to get the pens this is when the flipboard flipboard and the chat should come up um and then uh, pre and post surveys and things like that so it was really just very um volunteer driven community driven young people driven and fun which was the most important component right i mean i went to a couple of those i found a couple of those um and i can tell you like sometimes i went and i thought and just thought this is the this is the innovation that we came up with but it's so much more fun than we thought it was going to be we thought it was just like you know let's have a conversation very casually and let's get to meet people but sometimes it became things where people can actually spend this they can they can spend a lot a lot more time than we we thought they would um so that's so nice. That was, that was, I mean, that's for the conversation cafe. Yeah. I mean, I, I relate so much with your story. Um, with a lot of things. I mean, I haven't done, I haven't done anything like, like money in Brazil, but I mean, your story as a person uh, going through uh, mental health struggles at university. I mean, medical school sometimes can be a little bit tricky. There is so much. Sometimes there's competition. <laughs> there's a lot of coursework and there's this emotional load of like, um, yeah. being there for people and people that are vulnerable at some time. So you really need some sort of support system, the one that you mentioned, just to make sure that you're okay, right? And that's a good tip for everyone that's listening. Uh, if you're able to have some sort of support system anywhere you are, just go for it. This could be your friend, this could be your family, this could be a person you know, anyone you, you, f you feel like you can trust just to share a little bit of your journey. Because I know that sometimes it's kind of hard to go through stuff by yourself. So if you have anyone that can become your support system, please, please, please just go for it. Um, and, um, and it's very, very interesting. I mean, we defer a little bit because I've heard this gossip and this might be just a gossip, but I've heard this gossip that you've decided to become a surgeon because when you were, when you were a kid, you were playing video games and then someone came in and said, Oh, steady hands, you should be a surgeon. And then click, you become a physician. I've heard that you were a kid that has read a lot of books. That was very, always very interesting reading stuff, very interested in reading stuff. Um, and I, I, I'm a little bit different from that in the sense that I just found out that I really wanted to be a doctor just very later on. Um, but one thing that I'd like to point out in your story is that you're really highlighting the importance of engaging people, like engaging the community that you want to serve or bringing people to the table. And um, I'd really like to hear from you. How does it work? I mean, because I feel like whenever we're talking about mental health interventions, a lot of time we, we hear about different interventions that kind of like come top down. So there's this small group of people that think, hey, maybe we could do this. And then they start executing this without actually engaging the community around them. So I'm very interesting to know uh, now at this point in your, your life and your career, how do you see real engagement happening? What are the best practices? How does this work? Yeah, I think it's. I think the thing is, most times we 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 uh, accrue um, concepts like engagement to very bogus and very like complicated, you know, terms. But they are not like they're quite straightforward. You know, if I'm trying to sell a product, I do my market research. That means I get to consult with a community of people who I expect to buy the product. At the end, it's very straightforward. It's very. It's still part of the society and societal constructs, right? Um, when it comes to interventions and, and programs that charities do and, and non-profits and even governments and, 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 and funders, we don't think about that as market research. Like we think of market research as trying to find out those that could benefit from this, but I, it's, it's, it's more than that. 
you know, it's, it's actually having people to test out. If I'm playing a game, I've been part of a couple of, I've been beta testing some games that I've been, that I love, you know, like uh, Football Manager and a couple of those. When I test the game, I say, this is what I would like to see when I'm playing the game for real, you know? But it's my game, like I'm playing it and I still have to pay for it, but I'm offering that advice, which I think is just gonna make my game gameplay a lot more wholesome. But that applies to everything in real life, you know? If you want to, if you want to do something that is gonna be very, very useful for those that you're targeting, then you need to make sure you're consulting them. Um, when we when we initiate the first before we even I think I forgot to mention before we even before we even designed the strategy, we 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 got together in something called um, we called it eat out to reach out. So it's like a couple of 300 young people in the same place, eating, laughing, playing, but also you know brainstorming and helping us think through what kind of strategy we should apply, and that. You know, I, I, I assure you that was the that was the landmark. That was the foundation that we built on. Because if we didn't hear from them that they would love to learn about this, this and this mental health conditions in this way, and they even told us how to do it. Like, you know, every month you can focus on a different mental health condition. And you know, that whole month exhaust I want you to exhaust everything related to depression. I want to know everything about depression from the symptoms to the signs to you know different ways that people present to postnatal depression, even if it's not directly related to what they want to hear at the time. They have relatives that can actually benefit from this thing. So we we could have just gone straight forward with just like, you know, here's something we copied over the internet and here use it. You know, we're just providing it to you. But we had to we had to make sure we converted converted every of those, you know, information, every other information that we had into very relatable content, you know, questions, quizzes, vox pops on the street, like asking people about their existing knowledge. It was just as in-depth as they wanted it to be. And that made the biggest impact in terms of how young Nigerians actually thought about mental health, you know, started talking about it. In fact, we, we, we got to the stage where we had people on social media who we identified as spotters. So you know how in, in the US, like, you know, you have someone not just in the US and some like you know, countries where you have very long bridges that have a high risk of people jumping from them. They have people trained as spotters. So they spot people trying to jump and they try and help them. Um, so we, we, we had a social media version of spotters who actually sees posts on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram from people who are actually in distress. So they, it's like, I, they, we get so many messages like, this person's tweets are looking very weird. Do you want to reach out to them? And we do. So we, we actually had the spotters on social media and it was very organic process. We never really, really sought out to create that kind of environment. But because we we had framed ourselves as people who have the information that you can relate to, but also can provide support, it was, you know, it made sense that that was like, the, you know, that was the, the pathway that people went through. We, have, we still have lots of those. I think there was a time when we even did more or less like, um, what do you uh, sent in an analysis on social media to understand to make it easy for people to to identify keywords right that we can now use to you know redirect people to our pages you know if we know if a keyword comes up on the app we can just reach out directly but before we even got to the stage of using using sentinel analysis on, on social media we had individuals that were doing the spotting for us that's so nice because it, it kind of like shapes a little bit the way that we talk and think about mental health because I, I feel like one thing for me for instance there, there's still a lot of stigma on mental health like ever despite ev despite every effort that we have going on today on social media with celebrities and like programming work there's still a lot of stigma going on even for me I mean 
I'm now, I'm now a physician. The first time I went to therapy, I went to therapy while going through medical school because, you know, struggles. <laughs> and then it was this huge process of me, just like this huge internal process of like, okay, maybe therapy could be a good thing. Maybe therapy isn't that bad. I mean, therapy is awesome. Okay, I need to, I need to say this directly to camera. Let me tell you something, listener. I, I, I even need to position myself a little bit better. Therapy. Such a great thing. <laughs> if you're able to do therapy, please do therapy. I mean, for me, it was such a huge struggle to start doing that. Um, and I wonder, you've been to, you've done so many different um, actions and, and you've participated of many different programs. What do you see as a pathway for the future in terms of stigma? What do you feel like we haven't done already that we should do more to address stigma? Because I feel like we've tried so many things, but there's still so much stigma going on. What's the pathway forward? I'm gonna I'm gonna go a very very different approach, which is something that I, you know, sometimes I actually shy away from. I decide not to express that because it's very different. I. I told myself, I told people, I think it was Massey, a couple of people that we, we, we're friends with. And I said, I'm an anti, anti-stigma, you know, advocate. Like I, I, you know, the whole campaign against stigma, the whole branding, we have to use education to push, you know, we have to use, um, we have to correct people when they say, when they say this bad, this is not how you say it. Um, the whole idea of stigma as, a, as, as something that you punish, you know? It's uh, it's not really the 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 pathway that I I actually more or less like had the epiphany of. Um, so I always think about stigma as a consequence of of society. You know, if you live in a society where people are a bit more open, where the government and policies in place are actually you know facilitating access to mental health programs and and early access. Uh, and early prevention programs, you would find less of stigma. You would. That's it's just it's just it is basically what the science says. Um, so I think about stigma from a perspective of what are we not doing? What we're not doing, or we're doing it, but maybe we're not getting as much of a response. Is how are we influencing government policies when it comes to stigma? You know, what are those policies that actually affect stigma? What are those policies in workplaces, in schools, in in hospitals? Because even in psychiatric hospitals, you still have stigma. So it's not a question of people not knowing. They know. At least some people know. There's information out there. There's education. Um, but uh, when there's no consequence in terms of like, you know, political consequences or, you know, societal consequences of stigma, of being that person who expresses this to someone who is dealing with this, then people will still keep on doing that. So I'm not saying go towards the punitive measures. No, I'm saying if there's existing structures in place that make it easier for people that are, you know, dealing with mental conditions to find help, to feel safer in the places where they walk, the school, they live, then we're gonna have less stigma. Um, on the other hand, social media has been good, but also, you know, in some ways bad, you know, for, for anti-stigma messaging, because where you have increased information for mental health and people are learning a lot, you also have increased misinformation on social media. I mean, if you go to TikTok, oh my goodness. <laughs> There's so many, so many unqualified therapists and psychiatrists on TikTok. 
who are providing and, and, and suggesting different ways that you can take care of yourself. So if, you know, if we, if we don't have those approaches to make sure that people are getting the right set of information and knowing where to seek help and where to get help, again, we're still going to have the problem of stigma still persist. So I, I always say that stigma is not the problem. Stigma in itself is a consequence of an existing problem. That's how I think about it. Wow, that's very interesting. It's it's very nice to kind of like take a step back or maybe a step forward, depends on how you see it. Um, seeing stigma as more of a result and how structural changes can really kind of like move the needle forward. Because I feel like we're doing so much in terms of like education awareness and there's still so much stigma. So maybe the answer is in, you know, in this other way of thinking. Um, but I'm going to use this as a segue because we have segments in this podcast. It's a show. Come on. <laughs> We have segments over here. Let me, we, and we have the segment that is, um, if you were a policymaker, and I feel like that's the best segue ever uh, for, for this, this segment. So let me just play the vignette. Okay, maybe we don't have a vignette yet. Okay, so I'm going to create a vignette at the moment. Dun, dun, dun. Da, da, da. If you were a policymaker, that's it. Okay, that's the best I can do. I'm not doing this anymore. Um, you've talked so much about stigma and policymaking. What do you feel like is the way forward? If you were a policymaker for a day, what your like suggestion or proposal would be? And I know this is a very tricky question because mental health issues are very different when you think about like the global north, the global south. It really depends on the context and the issues people are facing. But it, like, given your broader vision, what what do you see like as a policymaker action that we could be doing to improve mental health for young people? I think a lot of times uh, a lot of policymakers operate in silos. So we have the Ministry of Health operating differently. They have their own programs. We have the Ministry of Education operating differently. They have their own programs. And there's some ministries that are missed out. You know, Ministry of Justice, Ministry of Finance. Where does the money come from? You know. Ministry of Social Welfare, like Ministry of Youths, they always missed out. It's like when you were in Nigeria, you have Ministry of Youths and Sports. So like that's their mandate. And most times they're really focused on sports-based approaches to getting young people away from drugs. That's what they say, <laughs> from drugs and substance use and abuse and, and, and substance use disorders. Um, I would use a multi-sectoral approach. You know, I bring all of these people to the same table and we will create a multi-sectoral strategy to approaching this. I would think about how exactly are we integrating mental health into the curriculum, into the educational curriculum, but not stop there and look at the environments as well, the enabling environments for, for mental health. You know, it's like we look at the psychosocial determinants of health. They affect mental health. We're looking at, you know, access to livelihood, livelihood standards, living standards of people. We're looking at poverty. We're looking at discrimination, tribal, you know, any kind of discrimination really um we're looking at even the 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 how would i put it like the, the workload of students how they're dealing with that we're looking at existing help that students can actually get immediately within the school settings within the workplace settings within the community we're looking at even a very structured and tired mechanism of health we're looking at you know making sure there's a good referral system between primary and secondary and tertiary healthcare systems where you have you know probably not doctors maybe you have community health workers at community health level 
in primary healthcare level who can actually diagnose mental conditions and know which ones they can refer, but also have the, the tools and the resources to deal with the early presentations of mental health problems. Um, for the ones that refer to secondary health in secondary healthcare centers, they know enough to be able to prescribe medications. And the thing about when, when I talk about medications, I you know my heart breaks because we're thinking about medications themselves have been so stigmatizing themselves that you know don't take medications but that makes sense because in our context the kind of medications that we get they're still very much old general older generation drugs that have very very debilitating side effects so that's the reality of most people in most low-income settings is that we're still dealing with the lack of access to quality medications which reinforces the stigma that people are facing so if you have to take a medication and you you're going to sleep the whole day you're not able to provide for your family and for yourself you're living in a context where there's huge economical setback you're not going to take those medications right that makes sense right um and then if you have access to better medications but they're costly again it's like you can you can't afford the things that can actually make you feel better um and the, and the reason is because if you look at the fact that mental conditions are Actually, severe mental health conditions are very, very sometimes chronic. So long-term care means that you spend more over time. So that's that's why we should be looking much more prevent prevention, as the how do I put it like as the as the road as the approach and the pathway to actually countering stigma. So we're looking at making sure that within schools, within within workplaces, within communities, that we have you know, very clear and very simple and very easy to understand messaging around mental health and, and going to the going to see um you know a healthcare worker early enough. But you cannot see a healthcare worker if you have to travel, you know, a thousand miles to see one. That's that's a bit too difficult. But if you have your primary healthcare center close to you, you can just get off, walk ten minutes, go in, sit down, get diagnosed and get help as you need it when you need it and you wouldn't you wouldn't you wouldn't have to progress to a much more severe mental health condition so thinking as a policymaker i think i'll look much more at community-based approaches but that one that integrates all the existing players you know educational system the justice system the financial system the the the, the, the parastatals are set up for youth and welfare and social welfare and then look, of course, at the Ministry of Health. So bringing all of that together in one place and designing strategies that are very much wholesome and holistic. That's why so holistic is the way to go. Um, and they're very much community-based and community-centered, community-driven as well. Yeah, I mean, wow, that was a that was a loaded answer. There's so much to talk about, but, but we have a hard stop very soon. So I'm going to leave this for a part two conversation. Um, anyways, um, I, I feel like just one real quick comment. Um, there is so much we can do in terms of mental health prevention, mental health promotion that we haven't been doing from any manufacturers. This could be resources this could be you know advocacy uh in terms of like how much of this is in the public agenda uh and this is there are many manufacturers in that but i completely agree that we have so much opportunity especially for young people in the context they are in may that be in the school system or um i don't know in, in different uh, communities they belong doing uh, mental health uh, uh promotion prevention work i, I feel like this is something that um, can really make a lot of difference. Um, 
And just to kind of like wrap things up, we just have another very quick segment that is questions from the audience. Uh, is there an audience at this point? No, there isn't. But there is a sister. So I have a question from my sister. <laughs> uh, she's currently 17 and she heard from the episode and she was like, okay, I'm going to send you a question. Um, do you have uh, any advice to offer for young individuals, young people that kind of like want to become advocates in this field of youth mental health? I feel like You've been everywhere, you've done everything, you've been a part of many, many things. So what advice would you give for, you know, my sister or any young person that would like to start an advocacy journey in youth mental health? What is there to be said? I mean, I wouldn't go, you know, wax philosophical on this. I think one of the biggest problems that we have is the starting, you know, to just that. Um, find a good group, find a good um, organization, Or a good pathway, a group of friends who are just as passionate as you are, um, and and start the conversation. But make sure you inform yourself well enough about the conversations and the topics that you want to be tackling, because um, that's very important. You're going to be asked questions by people who reach out to you or who you are who you're targeting. Um, make sure when I think about advocates, it depends. You know, in what way are you looking much more at? You know advocacy based on knowledge and awareness like to the public or you can advocacy to public to policy makers so you can even start reaching out to policy makers in your own community most times we think very big you know we think the impacts that we make at the national level is the only in kind of impact that's meaningful but even within your own school changing the policies around how stressful school is what kind of support that young people can actually get your own the classmates and your schoolmates can actually get within the school, that's impact, that's huge impact. And going beyond the school to the community itself, you know, how are you interacting with community, community uh, policymakers and duty bearers, and even your home, you know, what does it look like? What kind of conversation are you having with your parents? Uh, if you say you want to go see a therapist, how would they react to it? What about your friends? What about your cousins and your grandmothers and your grandparents who are much more, probably less open to the conversation as, 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 young, as younger folks are? Um, so starting from your own, it's like they say, charity begins at home. I'm not sure that I'm not sure what exactly that means, but I'm pretty sure it applies to something like this <laughs> to make sure that you start from start small. It's okay to start small. It's okay to start with the with the very place that you're from and then you can take it big. But always find people who are just as passionate as you because you can it's a very stressful thing. You you can get very discouraged <laughs> when you start this journey. I'm sure you know that Vinny. Like it's such a very I mean, it's rewarding in its way, but sometimes like you look at the amount of time and sacrifices you have to make and think, how exactly can I sustain this beyond now? How, you know, I don't see this, nothing is changing. I've done everything possible in the past eight years and nothing has changed. So what am I doing? Am I wasting my time? So being able to have people who can be on the same journey with you, who can keep you going, can encourage you, who you can have group support and peer support from, That's always the best way to go. Amazing. And I mean, love this advice, especially for my sister. Start small. My birthday's coming up. You can always start with a gift for me. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Anyways. Um, yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I feel like every time we talk about advocacy, especially in the global setting, it's usually those big things, participating of these huge conferences and talking to just huge like leaders. 
But sometimes the best change you can do is really just across the street. Um, and this really makes a lot of sense. So thank you for saying that. And, and yes, sis, the gift is on. Um, but um, I think we're kind of like coming to an end in terms of the conversation. Oh, I know I can already see people uh, mourning this end of this conversation. Um, but again, I feel like um, there's still so much we can talk, but... Thank you so much for being available to have this conversation. I feel like your your story with uh, money and your own personal story and how how your lived experience kind of like became a thing um, out of for your, became your passion, your mission, and work, and it ended up ended up trickling down to supporting more people, and that's very inspiring for me um, as a person. Um, so thank you, thank you so much for that. Um, and to kind of like wrap things up, do you have any, um, two, two questions, do you have any last comment? And the second question is if people want to learn more about Victor, oh, I heard from Victor in the, a at the Hey Doc podcast. I'm so interested in his work. I want to, where can they check you out? Like, is there any website, any LinkedIn, any, like anything they can hear more from you? Yeah, probably start with that one. Yeah, I, I think I'm mostly just on LinkedIn and, and Instagram. Instagram is very private and family. <laughs> but you can always find me on LinkedIn. Um, Victor Ugo MD. It's Ugo. If you write Hugo, you're not going to find him, okay? <laughs> Easy to find. Um, in terms of Ugo. U-G-O. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then... Um, in terms of the last comment, I think it's something I, I think when I was thinking of, when I was talking about stigma as a consequence, it's something that I I all I think is one of my newest passion. Um, one of the systemic um, barriers to you know conquering stigma, I would say, is the language of mental health and the diagnostic models that we have. You know, when it comes to classification of mental health, you know, we have the DSM-5 from the from from the APA in the US, we have the ICD-11 from WHO, like, you know, what exactly about this language, which we have taken on English, you know, we've taken on English as a language that we speak, but that's not really how everyone in the world speaks. So what exactly about that is something that we can own? So we actually was, I was working on a, on a research with a couple of friends called Mind Your Words, and we were going to do a pilot in Nigeria where we actually, we, we didn't, we're not going to look at the classification system of mental health. We're just going to go down to the community and just ask grandmothers and children, because these are like, those are your markers. You know, if a grandmother and a child can understand you, then you've really, you've, you're, you're there, you're listening to 90% there. So we want to ask them exactly what are some of the ups and downs there has been over a longer time just really going down to the roots to find exactly which we were looking at depression as a start and anxiety and just thinking how are the ways that they can what are the ways that they can use our local language to define how they feel differently without naming a depression or anxiety because i feel like if something is a mystery to you and i'm going to end with this if something is a mystery to you if it's something that you're not used to if it's a language and a word and a term and and you know an action that is fresh alien to you you either embrace it completely as a supernatural concept and a model which is what most of our religion is is, is built on that that hope or you fear it completely and fear is one of the foundations of stigma 
So when you look at the language, if it's, if, if, if it's something that we haven't completely come to understand or accept, we are afraid of it. We are afraid of whatever is associated with this word or this action or this phrasing. And that's one of the biggest foundations for stigma that we have. So it's, a very, it's not very much of a positive way to end. <laughs> but I just thought it's something that we needed to know. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs> Yeah, no, um, it's very interesting. How, how do we make sure that we have evidence-based uh, like research and practices that, you know, make sense for like in the context and in the community? It makes a lot of sense. Um, how It's always this question that comes up. How do we keep, you know, the evidence-based approach? But here, like in my street, in my community, in my country, in with my language, with my people, and and that's... That's episode two, everyone. <laughs> so um, thank you so much, Victor, for being here. I absolutely loved it. Had a, a blast. Thank you so much, everyone who's been, who's been listening so far. This has been such a great conversation. If you have any questions, if you have any comments, if you have any suggestions, anyone would like to be, you'd like to see here, just send us um, a DM. Oh, yeah, I have to do this marketing thing. Uh, it's like, there is an Instagram page. <laughs> It's called Ed Hey Dog Podcast without an age. Remember, you're in Brazil, so we don't have an age here for hey. It's like eight. So Hey Dog Podcast on on, um, on Instagram. Just follow us over there. Send a message. I love to keep uh, having this conversation. And uh, as a, a a quick uh, finalizing thing, as a quick final thing, um, bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much for having me, Vinny.